Well, good morning again. So as you can see up there, we've called our series this term, The Making of Our World. And the point of our reflections at the moment is to investigate the idea together of creation in the Bible. And what do we believe as Christians about this world we live in, this creation? And as we get into the idea of creation, it actually begins to ask big questions for us. Things like, where did we come from? Why are we here? And what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live well in this world that God's made? And the Bible provides some answers for these questions um, and reflections on it by giving us a series of stories that we're looking at now that set up for us a vision of this world, the cosmos, a vision of human life and the challenges and the problems that face us in the world, and all of those done in the light of our experience of God. And so these stories in particular you can find in the beginning of the book of Genesis, particularly the first 12 chapters. So that's what we're focusing on this season. Now, if you look at these early chapters of Genesis, they have some of the most iconic stories in the whole Bible. So there are stories and images here that even people who don't know the Bible, have never read it, they still know about it. So, for instance, there are things like Noah and the Ark. Most people understand that. Um, the Tower of Babel is a common image. And, of course, Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden, which is what we read about today. Um, and this is our passage today, and it's one that people find endlessly fascinating and endlessly mysterious. Uh, by the way, I've noticed that advertisers really love this story because the fruit seems to be a symbol of things or something that we desire. So they go, oh, our product is like the fruit, which doesn't seem to really understand what the fruit was in the story. But anyway, um, now, when we read this story, it's an interesting one because it does raise a lot of questions. Now, there's a, there's a whole industry which you might have come across on the internet, which is basically about people spending time finding what they call plot holes in movies and TV shows and things like that. Does everyone know what a plot hole is? No. Okay, I'll just explain. So a plot hole, it's an event in a story or it's part of a story that doesn't really seem to actually make sense when you think about it within the context of the story. It, does, it, it isn't explained properly within the story and so it leaves hanging questions in your mind about what was that actually, how did that relate to what was um, actually happening. Um, there's a bit of logic that's been smoothed over. Now, some people can't stand there to be any plot holes in a story and they will try to find them. Um, though others are, are able to suspend disbelief and say, I'm just going to enjoy this. I'm just going to enjoy this story. It doesn't matter, can, you know, can, can a car leap over an entire you know, river or something like that? It's not a question you want to ask. Now, Genesis chapter 3, which we've just read, it's a notorious story in the Bible for people to find kind of these plot holes or unresolved questions in. And it's a story, I think, that often brings up more questions for people than answers as they read it. And it even seems to invite these questions. So as we read it today and as we think about it, things might occur to you, questions to ask, like, uh, what's this serpent doing here in the story? I thought God had created a perfect world. How did he get into it? Um, why would God allow the snake into the garden anyway if this was going to be such a problem? Um, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the garden where they're obviously going to run across it? Um, isn't that just asking for trouble? Um, What's so wrong with eating a piece of fruit anyway? How could that, what's that going to do to you? And what kind of fruit was it? People always assume it's an apple, but it, it's not said. Uh, one question might be, well, if Adam and Eve were supposed to die once they ate this fruit, then why didn't they? Uh, and does God actually go for walks in gardens, as it's described here? Um, lots of questions. And I'm going to look at some questions next week that people have about these stories. 
Now, these, there's various ways of approaching this particular issue with this story. Um, and I think the most helpful for us today is to really start asking, what is this story doing here at this point in Genesis? What are we supposed to learn and think about as we read it? Because when people write stories like this, or they put together them in uh, books like Genesis, what they're, they're actually trying to achieve something in particular. They're actually trying to do something. And we run into problems when what we try to do with the story is different to what the people who wrote it were trying to do. And it's a common problem I've actually uh, not noticed that we have with the early chapters of Genesis. So, for instance, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned, you know, when we look at the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, um, with that story often we would like to make it a description of the scientific history and physical development of the world, a story about that. Whereas, in fact, it's more likely, I think, to be a poetic description of the world itself, to say, oh, this is a temple that God is wanting to live in. That's the kind of story it is. And when we read about Adam and Eve, perhaps we want to dissect the story according to those questions I've asked, as though it were like a newspaper story that we were hoping to read about uh, more detail and find out, well, what actually went on there about a particular historical event? So assuming that, hey, if I was there at the time, I would have seen a woman talking to a snake in front of a tree, and I want to know what's actually going on behind this a bit more. Now, that may have happened, of course, but it's not actually the purpose, I think, of the story in Genesis 3 that we're given. And I think that's where a lot of those kind of plot hole questions arise. We think this story is supposed to be fully consistent and whoever wrote the story just didn't give us enough detail and we'd like some more, please. So that's one problem we have with this story as we read it. Another problem we have with reading this passage is that it's been the basis for a lot of later theological, that is, uh, talk about God, interpretation. Ideas that we have about things like sin. How is sin transmitted across generations? How did death get in the world and suffering and things like that? And we have a system of beliefs, perhaps. It's like a grid that you read this story through. And every time we read the story, we put that on top of it rather than hearing what the story says for itself. A great example of this would be that if you look at this particular chapter in most Bibles, those that have chapter headings uh, at the top of each one, at the top of chapter 3, it will often say something like, The Fall. And it actually says that in our trolley Bibles in the church. At chapter 3 it says, the fall, this is what it's about. Um, someone puts that heading in because they think this is what the story is about and it'll help you understand it. So when we read the story, that's what we're primed to think about. Now I just want to talk about the fall for a minute. If you're familiar with this idea, the fall is the belief that in the beginning, when they were made, human beings, we were perfect. We were immortal, we didn't die. Um, and that in this story we see a moment at which humanity fell from that high position into the life we have of death and sin and that we've dragged all the rest of the world into that with us. That's the idea of the fall. The idea is that there's a historical moment before and after. There was a time when the universe was perfect and a time when it was not. And now this is a very common idea. It's a very old idea in the church and it may be true. But to be honest, if we read this story, the idea of the fall is not actually mentioned in the story itself. Um, and it's worth questioning whether that's what's really going on here. And what are we supposed to take, really take away from this story if we don't have that chapter heading at the top of it? So what I want to do today is to get behind those questions and assumptions and look at this story again from a fresh perspective for us. And I think that what we have here in this story is a description of what we might call the human condition. And some of the tensions, some of the challenges that we have in our relationship with God in our relationship with ourselves and with other people and with creation. And Genesis 3 actually describes the world that is characterised by brokenness, is characterised by division, 
um, in a world that needs God's healing and salvation. And so in that light, I want to make three observations about this story for you today. There's so much we can get out of it, but there's a few things to say. Now, the first thing I think is that this story appears to me to be primarily about, as a theme, the journey that human beings undergo from innocence into maturity with regards to spiritual life. The journey from innocence into maturity. So and in a common interpretation of this story throughout the history of the church is that Adam and Eve, they were or they represent as symbols their pure childlike innocence and capacities of human beings made in the image of God. And this capacity that can lead to growth into maturity with God or a decline into destructiveness if it's not uh, fulfilled. And this is what we do see actually in our own children as we see them grow up. Everyone we know begins life full of potential, but innocent, unformed. And children need to be nurtured towards maturity. They need to find their own calling in the world, and they need to uh, make that with God. And on the way, we see people, all of us, we know we can make mistakes. We turn away from developing and growing. And that's the challenge that faces everyone, all of us, and humanity as a whole. How do we become what God has made us to be? How do we grow into that calling? Last week, Vivian looked at the story of the creation of Adam and Eve by God in chapter 2. And we find the idea there that humans are these creatures of the dust. We're formed together to show the image of God in the world. And that we might do that properly, it's our calling. It's a, it's a possibility that God has placed in us and it's the underlying divine image in every person. And I think this story in Genesis 3 describes the challenges and the obstacles that we have to fulfilling that calling and how we haven't done so. And that's why I think there is this inclusion of, in this story of the two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And those represent two different ways of embracing this life that God's given us and the calling that he has for us. Either we centre ourselves on God's life, his presence, the tree of life, or we choose a path of separateness from him, our own knowledge of good and evil. We set up our, ourselves as little gods apart from him, our own morality, our own systems of life, and everything that is not him. And I think that's what the serpent is presenting to Eve when she, he tempts her with that fruit, saying, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent we know is a liar, but that's not a total lie. Like most effective lies, it has truth in it. But the temptation he's offering them is the false idea that becoming like God, which is our calling, is possible to do apart from a relationship with God. The temptation that it's possible to become like God apart from a relationship with God. And that's the mistake that Adam and Eve make here. Now, I want us just to take a short break here to watch a video in a minute which explains this idea more clearly, the significance of the trees in the garden. I found this this week and I can't resist showing you. So hopefully the sound's okay at the moment, but for this one, I'll have a go. That's the tree, of life, the tree of life in this story. Uh, we might just have to move on. That's okay. We'll try and show it later. That's fine. You want to go to the next slide? That's okay. So there's just a video. It explains the, the significance of the image of the tree of life in the Bible and what it means for us. It's actually quite significant over the years. Um, 
But what I want to say is what we actually see here in this part of the story, um, where Adam and Eve eat this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, is that we can actually hear a description here of the process of human beings entering into a path of rebellion against God and against his life, which he's offering them. And they choose a way, we choose a way that doesn't lead to life, it doesn't lead to maturity with God. Um, And that is what all of us, to some degree or another, have chosen. And this environment is the environment that we're born into. It's the environment we're led into by our parents and that they were led into by their parents. And we look back as far as we can see into the mists of time that this is how human beings have lived, apart from God. And the rest of the story of the Bible is in one sense a story of how God leads us out of this downward path that we're on into a new experience of this tree of life. How do we come back to God together? And so last week, Vivian reminded us that this is one of the things that we actually see in Jesus. This is one of his, the significance of him, that in Jesus there's this complete growth of a human being into maturity and connection with God. The tree of life is at the centre. God is at the centre of his life and his purpose. And so Jesus, we hear, does what Adam and Eve and all of us have actually failed to do. He eats from the tree of life. So my second, that's my first observation about what the story is teaching us. The second observation is about what happens to us as a result of this failure that the story says. So I said earlier, the fall is one way that we talk about this. That's one image, Um, a movement from a higher state to a lower state. But when Genesis 3 goes on after Adam and Eve and after they eat the fruit, it talks about the consequences that this has for their relationships in particular. And God outlines a set of curses that they're going to undergo because of their disobedience. And I would actually describe what we see here less as a fall than as actually a split or a series of splits that, that they experience. So the results for us of this choice of life against God are that the things in this world that human beings are supposed to bring together are split apart and cause pain and division. So, for instance, we know from the story human beings are supposed to bring together this world and God in a personal relationship. But we've rejected that and instead we feel the need to hide from God, to be split off from him ashamed of being weak, ashamed of being imperfect, and we feel naked and ashamed before God and his presence. And immediately, we read in the story, after they eat the fruit, Adam and Eve realise that they're naked, and they try to cover themselves with leaves and hide away from God. They're now split off from him. And that's actually a split in the cosmos. You know, there's this absurd fact in the story here that the image of God is actually separated from God himself and trying to hide. It's a strange picture. But we know this to ourselves to be true. Every time we have an experience of guilt or shame, we feel we haven't measured up, we want to justify ourselves. You know, it's hard to humble and to say I'm wrong because we feel split off from God and from his love and life. So there's this split between us and God now, they say. And secondly, there's also a split that this story describes within ourselves. So a split basically between our, the bodies that we have and our spirit that God's given us. So the story describes how death, which is a natural occurrence for living creatures, becomes for human beings actually a very fearsome and scary thing. The soul, the life that God gives us, is split off from our body and it goes away. And we become trapped in this dust that he's made, this body of dust that goes back to the world. So the curse is that God says in verse 19, for out of dust you were taken and to dust you will return. We're split off from the life that we're supposed to have. So the third split that we describe in this story is the split among human beings in between them. The main significant one of here, of course, in this story is God says to them that a spirit is going to arise between Adam and Eve, a spirit of competition, a spirit of strife between men and women, um, trying to rule over each other rather than serve and care for each other. 
they're all trying to be their own gods. And this most intimate relationship is going to be broken open. And into it will come fighting and violence. And we know, of course, in our own experience, how fraught this male-female relationship can be, how much pain there is in it, and how much problems have come from that kind of split between us. So it describes that kind of experience. And we'll see more about this idea in the cur- of this curse between us next week in the story of Cain and Abel. And so the final split also that we see in this story is between humanity and the earth and humanity and the world that God's made for us. Because the intention that he, he gave us is that we live in harmony with it, being stewards and carers of the world, looking after this thing, after this earth we're on. But in the sinful atmosphere that we've generated, this relationship actually becomes a battle. There's sweat and toil involved. We're fighting with the earth, attempting to dominate it for our own purposes. And that's a compelling description of a lot of our environmental crises today, I think, and the experience we have of not being in unity with the world in which we live. We're split off from it. So I think that what we can see here is this chapter is actually a description of our human condition. It's brokenness. There's a split within us and around us, particularly between us and God. Things fall apart and we're not able to put them back together again. So rather than being a kind of strange mythological story full of plot holes, this story of Adam and Eve and the serpent, it's actually very realistic. It's a grounded description of what human life is actually like and what's underneath these problems that we experience. And again, the Bible itself is largely about how does God work with people to overcome those problems and bring us to a new way of living, a renewed world, where all these splits are actually going to be healed. So that's my second observation of what this story is about, and it's a big one in itself. And my final observation here is that we, we hear in this story, we're not actually the only culprits in this predicament that Adam and Eve have entered into. Um, and the story indicates the awareness that we are in some respects victims in this situation as well. So the identity of the serpent in the story is, of course, a mystery. Um, in the initial writing of the story, they're probably just a character that was introduced to get this conflict to happen, um, to show the temptation that we're in. And the serpent in the story, as it's represented, is just one of the animals in the garden, but one of the most intelligent ones. But over the years, Christians have also often identified this serpent with evil spiritual forces that we find in the world, particularly Satan and the devil and his work. Um, And there's a sense in which the human story, we realise, it's a struggle against temptation and sin, and it's, but it's also part of a larger struggle that's going on in the world between God and between other for, forces of evil and chaos that are against God's creation and want it to be, not succeed. And this spiritual war, it is mysterious. It's happening for reasons we don't entirely understand and we're only given hints of it in the Bible as to what's actually going on. So the serpent is a mystery, but whatever it is, what we, re- what we actually know through our experience is that we struggle and res- we experience a resistance to our growth with God. It doesn't come just from inside us, but it comes from without us. And it doesn't want us to grow into maturity with God. It resists that very vigorously. In verses 14 to 15 of our reading, there are curse that God gives against this serpent. He says there's going to be an ongoing fight between this creature and human beings. So God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And in this verse, Christians have often seen a reference to Jesus and his victory over Satan on the cross, crushing the head of this serpent, this battle between human beings and the forces of evil actually being won there through Jesus' sacrifice and his death. So those are my observations about this story. There's a lot in it, as you can hear. And I hope we can see, though, 
that this passage in Genesis is an immensely rich and significant story in the Bible, and each of those ideas we've looked at briefly, you could do a whole series on them themselves, and maybe we will one day. But the story itself that we've got is actually it's quite, it's a very inspired picture of what it means to be human in the world now as we experience it in our relationship with God. So we know we have a great destiny from God and a great purpose from him, and we can sense that in ourselves, we can see it in other people. But this purpose is often frustrated, sadly, by our own immaturity, our bad choices, our failure, the culture around us and the atmosphere in which we live. And our lives in our world are then split and we're broken open by this reality. We can't control it, we can't fix it. We can't get to the bottom of it. And we're also trapped and deceived by spiritual forces that we don't understand but yet hold us in their power. It's the human predicament. We are exiled from the garden, that's how this chapter ends, wandering in exile in the world, trying to find our way back to the tree of life. And so the New Testament in particular has a lot to say about this predicament and how Jesus addresses that because it was one of his key missions and the hope the Christians have in the face of that. Now, there are really too many references to this in the New Testament even mentioned today. And in fact, in large part, the New Testament is a reflection on how Jesus is healing these problems, the human condition, and setting us free to live the way that we should and to grow into maturity with God. I'm just going to use two examples to show you this. So the first is from Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul compares here Adam and Jesus and the effect their actions and obedience or otherwise to God have had on the human race. So in verses 17 to 19 of Romans 5, Paul says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And he goes on to say, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. So we can hear in this writing of Paul the echo of Genesis 3 and this story we've heard. Um, that the choice of humanity, a bad choice, the wrong path that we're taken, the one we're all on from the beginning, that path is turned around through Jesus and his obedience to God. Our life now with him becomes a path towards God and his righteousness through what Jesus has done. That's one example of how Jesus works with this particular picture. And another example is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Uh, it speaks about the relationship between us and Jesus as God's children and the significance of that. Um, and that he came to share our life, he shared the curses that we're under as a result of sin. So it says in this passage, since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might break the power of, of, of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So as I said, you know, our future as human beings with God needs to be free from the fear of death, the fear of the serpent. And whatever evil is represented there, that's held people down since the beginning. And by conquering death in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus actually has broken the hold that the serpent has over our lives and sets us free to enjoy the presence of God again. So those are just two of many examples that we could have, but it's worth reflecting on as you read the New Testament in the light of Genesis. So, but as we reflect on this story, I hope that what it does for you and for all of us is to draw us again to ask 
what our life is about, where is it headed? Um, where are we going? Are we on a journey now with God into a deeper knowledge of him? Are we seeking the tree of life, God's presence? Are we growing in maturity, exploring the capacities that God's given us for creativity and for life with him? Is the way that we live actually bringing things together now, bringing people into experiences of love and unity with God and with each other and the world around us into healing as well? Because that's our, that's our, our calling. That's the image of God in us. It's the sign of God's blessing on creation being expressed through us and it's the calling of the church to be living out that life, that reality. Or are we experiencing the other path, you know, separation from God, fear of life, fear of death, splitting off from other people and feeling under the oppression of spiritual darkness and all of us are probably in that space to some extent because that's the world in which we live. That's the human condition though and Jesus Christ has come though to set us free from that curse and to start again. So we need today, I think, to renew our trust and faith in him today and ask him to lead us on, out of that, invite him to change us and to heal us as he promised he would. So as we finish listening to this this morning, let's do that. I'm going to spend some time in prayer, just becoming before God and asking him to do that for us today. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that all of us are participating in this experience of being split off from you and from each other, from ourselves, from the world in which you live, in which you have placed us. All of us have participated in this failure. All of us need your healing. All of us need to be saved. We pray that you would make us aware of where we are before you, the way we hide ourselves away, the shame that we have, not so that we can go into the dust, but so that we could come to you for new life. I pray that we would take hold today of the victory of Jesus over sin and death, that you would lead us into a life of unity and harmony with each other, with you, and with the world around us so that we can be what we were made to be. I pray you would set us free from the serpent and his lies, which hold so many people. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.